Take it to a cause, good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello, I'm Olivia Blake. Uh, I'm the Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam. And I'd like to welcome you this Sunday afternoon to the session that we've got of the Rice Festival entitled People and Planet on the Brink, Socialist Solutions to the Climate Catastrophe. Um, we meet today only months after the IPCC delivered their final warning on the climate crisis, insisting that we must act now to keep global temperatures below 1.5 degrees centigrade. We are already feeling the effects of rising temperatures in Pakistan, floods have displaced millions of people, while the global south has been wracked by droughts and famine. No one can deny that we're seeing the effects in the UK as well, where last year's unprecedented heat wave resulted in over a thousand excess deaths, while people from across the country have increasingly suffered from extreme floods. As we get uncomfortably closer to irreversible climate and nature tipping points, from which there may be no recovery, the cost of living crisis goes on, driving the soaring, uh, the soaring energy prices that we're seeing. Um, the planet is burning, people are feeling the pinch, and yet the profits of the oil and gas giants are soaring. Far from acting with urgency needed to meet the challenge of the crisis and curb the profiteering of the fossil fuel companies, the government are in instead issuing new oil and gas licenses and funding natural gas projects in Mozambique, all while maintaining the effective ban on building onshore wind, neglecting other forms of renewables, and dragging their feet on insulating our homes. Even where there has been an expansion of offshore wind, the government has tendered contracts to large multinationals, wasting the opportunity to develop our green economy at home and create those good quality green jobs in the UK we all want to see. What better time to discuss the urgent action we need to tackle the emergency and importantly, how we organise it um, and how we get to it. I'll introduce um, our panel now for today, which represents a range of climate activists from the UK and beyond. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Sam Mason, the trade union caucus convener of the Climate Justice Coalition, Sam Knight from the activist organisation Green New Deal Rising, Tess Wolfenden, the Debt Justice Campaign's climate lead, and Carola Mejia of the Latin American Network for economic and social justice. But before we go to our panel, I'm now going to hand over briefly to Sam, an Arise Festival volunteer who will tell us a little bit more about the festival and what you can do to support it. Hi everyone, yeah, thanks very much for attending this Sunday's event. Uh, I think it's gonna be a fantastic discussion. Uh, just three things, three things I need you to remember. The first thing is, um, the festival itself is run entirely by volunteers and entirely off the back of donations. The best way you can help us um, uh, in order to keep the festival going is to uh, buy a solidarity ticket. You can do that in the link that we posted in the chat as people are talking. So that's the first thing. Please buy a solidarity ticket. All the events are free, but if you buy a ticket, it means we can uh, we can afford to do this again uh, next year. Um, second thing 
is please check out the other events um, on the link tree that's posted in the chat as well. We've got a, a dizzying array of um, meetings and discussions um, about a variety of different um, issues, like ranging from the climate crisis to Ireland to um, the economy to Latin America to global justice. Um, please check those out and, um, and 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 get to more of these get to more of these events. Um, the final thing is please to donate. Uh, we've got a, a donate link that we check, um, posted in the chat. Um, it'd be fantastic if you could donate whatever you can. Again, we're a people powered organization run by volunteers. We run off donations um, and you know we need your help uh, in order to keep events like this going. Um, thanks so much, Olivia, and I'll let you, let you get on with the discussion. Brilliant, thanks, Sam. Um, now to our panel, let's get the discussion rolling with our first question, which is fundamental to the discussion we'll be having this evening. Um, as I said in the intro, the IPCC have declared their and delivered their final warning. Um, why has the UK government and governments across the globe failed to act, been too slow to act? And what are the barriers that we're facing to effective climate action? And what pressure do we need to exert to get rid of them? Quite a broad question there. So I'll turn to our first speaker, um, Sam Mason, if that's okay to answer that. Yeah, thanks, Olivia. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big question. And um, yeah, and thanks for the opportunity to participate in this discussion today. Um, it's really good. Um, I, I mean, I think that the short answer is, you know, we have a government that doesn't really care, um, particularly. Um, and I, I think we have to be honest about that. I think they do, obviously, you know, they, they go to the COP climate talks, um, they participate in that. But I think anybody who clearly is taking this issue seriously and the um, threat, obviously, to humanity and nature um, and the future um, would be acting very differently um, to what our government's doing. And I think one of the, the big problems, um, and certainly from our side, is um, is because they're still focused on the market-based economy and competition and wanting to push forward that somehow it be solved in this magical, um, mythical world of the markets and the private sector leading on this. And I think when you've got, you've made a reference to the, um, you know, energy companies and their colossal profits. Now, when you're putting those same corporations in charge of leading on the energy transition, I think that tells you all you need to know. And I think one of the very worrying things that we see at the moment, and I do a lot of work around the energy transition agenda, not just in the UK, but globally, is that we're, try we're seeing now, you know, corporations trying to take over renewable energy, for example, in the same fossil fuel model. And, and that we absolutely, have to change as well. So I think, you know, in terms of um, some of the, the barriers is a fundamentally about our economic and political model that, that we have that is stopping this. And I think, um, yeah, I, I could do a long speech on this. So I'll, I'll um, probably leave it there to enable others to come in. Thanks. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. And, and we've clearly seen massive profits being uh, kind of shown in the last couple of weeks with 4 billion for BP and 115 high for, for Shell in terms of their profit margin. So I think that's a really interesting point, Sam. Um, I'll just open it up to Tess from Debt Justice. 
next, if that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't agree with some more. I think um, we're operating in a time or and in a space where private sector profit is prioritised at all costs, literally even at the cost of our climate and the environment and ecosystems. Um, and although decision makers and, and people in power might be saying the right things, really, when it comes to action, they're not doing enough. Countries are losing huge sums of their available revenue to debt repayments every year, going into the hands of, of private sector, often private sector lenders, um, which are resources that could instead be spent on addressing the climate crisis. And while leaders, uh, international leaders, have put in place schemes that are supposed to support global South countries to seek debt relief, those schemes aren't working because they don't do anything to force private sector participation. So they're allowing private sector actors off the hook while um, they could be making billions in profit. And meanwhile, Global South countries don't have the resources they need to respond to the climate crisis. I think that's a really kind of clear example of how these dynamics are playing out in reality. That's a really interesting point, and I'd love to probe that a bit later on, a bit more, if that's okay with you, Tess. Um, Sam Knight, should I come to you next? Is that okay? I'll keep on asking you if it's okay, Sam, will you, will you give you your comments now? <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, um, who are the climate delayers? Um, I think we all already know. You know, I think when we turn on the TV and the radio, they're the exact same voices that are telling us that poverty is inevitable, that we have to accept the status quo, that the cost of living crisis is just something that we accept. We should all just accept that we're going to be poorer. These are the exact same voices that are lobbying first for climate denial and now for climate delay. We've seen this routine over and over and over again. I mean, if we look back through the history of capitalism over the last thousands of years, we'll see it very intricately linked to the exploitation of fossil fuels, the development of carbon capitalism. And we can see the establishment now defending itself wherever it can, where fossil fuels, where that power is threatened. And so any progressive that seeks to take climate science seriously, that seeks to redress the power imbalances that we currently have in our society, will inevitably come up against the weight and the power of fossil capital. So like for us as progressives, that presents a problem and it's a political problem, right? It's not really a tech problem. We know that we have the technological solutions to solve this crisis. We know that there is enough wealth in the world. There is enough resources in the world. There is enough land in the world that is just not evenly distributed. And therefore, for those of us in the climate movement and for those of us in the labor movement too, what we need to acknowledge is that this is a political crisis and it's going to require political solutions, which is why like Green New Deal Rising, for example, does electoral organizing. Um, but across our movements, we need to really start thinking about how to elevate that progressive cause and how to show down the right in their constant attack. And yeah, just a massive shout out to the work that Green New Deal Rising have been doing, uh, really invigorating, uh, particularly young people, but really valuable points there, Sam, about the challenges that we've got and the climate denial and now delay that we're facing. Um, I'll bring in Carola, if that's okay, and, um, um, and we'll then just open up the discussion a bit more um, with a few other questions. So over to you. 
Thank you very much, Olivia. I agree. I completely agree with the previous speakers. Uh, the climate crisis, as other environmental crises, has been cre uh, created and caused by unsustainable development models, capitalism, consumerism, extractivism, which, de de which depend deeply on fossil fuels and excessive exploitation of natural resources in the, name, in the name of this economic growth, mainly for the benefit of Global North and small wealthy groups and the fossil fuel corporations. So the real solution should come mainly from these main polluters, but unfortunately existing environmental and climate commitments uh, are highly insufficient. Less progress is being made in, in implementation, false solutions are being promoted like market-based mechanisms, um, there's a lack of political will to re really transform the system uh, as, as fast as we need. After 27 COPs and so many years of climate negotiations, less progress, less progress has been made and Last year it was the first time we were talking about uh, fossil fuels, which is the main source of this problem. And we are running out of time. Latin that has a campaign with that name, the time's running out, the future is now, to raise awareness, but also to demand the, these big polluters uh, to, to act now. We demand under the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, these, uh, but, well, all governments, but especially this global north, uh, countries and large fossil fuel corporations to stop their investments in fossil fuels on a large uh, on a global scale, reduce their consumptions on resources and energy. If they have to grow, maybe that's the solution as well. Stop promoting false solutions like the one I was mentioning, for example, carbon markets, carbon neutrality, carbon capture technologies, which do not solve the problem and will only uh, further deepen inequalities. We demand them uh, a fair reparation of their historical climate debt. Uh, industrialized countries uh, should uh, also uh, fulfill their commitments regard regarding climate finance, which is creating more problems than really solving them. Uh, we demand uh, new and additional climate finance uh, that does not generate debt, which is something that we have been working on. We have been very uh, worried because most of climate finance, two-thirds, are coming to our countries. I'm from Bolivia in South America. They are coming as loans, very expensive loans that need to be repaid and are not really helping. Uh, so yeah, some th those are some of our, our, our demands that I wanted, uh, wanted to share. You know, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? And finance is clearly an availability of capital is a, is a huge problem. Um, I wonder if we just kind of jump straight into a follow-up question with you, Carola, if that's okay, about what you feel is the kind of the the true definition of climate justice um, with regards to kind of like how this works on a kind of global level. Like what are the levers or the, the um, what are the things that we need to see happen in order for us to tackle this um, across the globe rather than just country by country, state by state. Yes, for me, uh, climate justice is related to differentiated responsibilities uh, among countries and also differentiated uh, climate impacts among different groups of the population. According to IPC estimates, approximately 3.6 billion people live in countries that are highly vulnerable to climate change. These people live mostly in global south countries like mine, Bolivia, as I mentioned, which ironically are the least responsible for this global problem. Within our countries, there are also disproportionate impacts for historically marginalized and discriminated groups like women, indigenous communities, rural farmers, poor families, the elderly, children, among others. So climate extreme events are and slow progress impacts are putting people's lives, ecosystems, water, food security at risk, 
they are causing displacement and migration and represent, representing also billions of dollars in economic losses and damages that are being covered with more depth from our countries because we don't have enough fiscal space. In this sense, uh, as we were mentioning, international climate finance could play an important role. And, but as I mentioned, uh, the, the $100 bill pledge has not, be, has not been fulfilled. Uh, and only 24% is going to adaptation, which should be a priority for the South. I know the global crisis, the climate crisis needs to be stopped, but also we need to highlight that this cl climate crisis is already having impacts, severe impacts in, in, the most, in the poorest people, in the most vulnerable. So we really need to address also in differentiated ways. Um, yeah, so that's something, yeah. And, and also climate finance, uh, climate, well, Climate justice should be about reparations, accountability, and justice, putting life uh, in the core of the decisions and not greed and not these uh, economic interests of private and small groups. So that's yeah, my, my reply. No, that's really helpful. I wonder, Tess, if you've got any reflections on the debt issues that we've just been discussing, because clearly that is a big big barrier and one that we need to overcome and think about what what models would work to and kind of be able to help um unlock the adaptation um money that people need and and where are we going wrong at the moment in the way that the governments have kind of been handling this so far I think um based on the work that we do and also Latin that does you could kind of look at this question from two different sides so the first is what Carola has already mentioned, that the international community has essentially failed to deliver on their climate debt. They're not paying up for um, the harms that they have caused. And as a result, Global South countries are having to pay for the impact of the climate crisis, which they did not create themselves, often by going into more very expensive debt with high interest rates, essentially meaning that creditors are given an opportunity to profit from the climate crisis. Um, the other side of it is also um, that the international community has failed to respond to the debt crisis, which, as I mentioned, has um, is draining resources out of global South countries and again into the hands of creditors, which means countries don't have the resources they need to respond to the climate crisis and other multiple crises too, right? We're in an economic crisis, there's the pandemic, there's all these other things going on at the same time. Um, so really what we're seeing is the international community failing to respond, but also refusing to respond. I think there is a genuine sense that they, you know, again, are saying the right things. Let's address this. They're going to cop, like Sam said, they're turning up. But, but really, when we leave, what comes of it? They're doing a very good job of maintaining the status quo while trying to greenwash themselves in the process. Thanks, Tess. Sam, I'm going to pivot a little bit to kind of um, our movement and what our movement could be doing a bit more in, in order to get the the uh, the social justice and the climate justice that we, we need to see and whether what roles you feel uh, the work of, of your group and, and trade unions internationally and nationally can have on on that. Sam Mason. <laughs> yeah, I, I was waiting for the trade union mention. I thought you must mean me. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a, um, uh, a really important point. And 
within that whole sort of framing of climate justice, and I think it's really good that Tess has mentioned about the multiple crises, um, because within the, the Climate Justice Coalition Trade Union Caucus, I mean, we, we just held a conference in Manchester called We Make Tomorrow, and we in, intentionally called it Climate and Crisis. Um, and it, it's about recognizing that we, you know, we have an intersection of all these crises now, and, you know, and it's what we always solve, you know, solving the climate crisis, will go a long way to obviously solving some of these other issues and that's how we need to see it as within transformative policies as well and and i think in in, in part of that obviously you know as part of the climate justice coalition we are entirely rooted into that international dimension of the the climate justice movement and the things that carola has um talked about as well because we we have to ensure that there's justice there so i think you know on one level there is a um, a need for a political education about, you know, what does it mean to be greening our economy? What, what does it mean, you know, for us to have decarbonisation plans in terms of um, the UK labour movement or UK workers and trade unionists and the impacts of those on the global south or other regions as well, or even in, in you know, nationally um, between some of those divisions, because as we know, you know, there are finite resources, even for renewable energy, we have to be looking across supply chains, we have to be making sure that across every step of the way and where we're fighting for um, you know, jobs as part of the transition, that the, this is about justice all the way along. So I think we, we have that level. I think there's some really good initiatives that happen at the moment. So one of the things that I'm part of is Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, which is a global trade union initiative that is really trying to um, work um, in the global north, global, global south as well, which just launched Global South um, Chued initiative, where we're really trying to deep, di deep dive into a lot of these really complex issues around the transition. But I think in terms of the justice side as well, I think one thing we never have to lose sight of is around the social protection side. And I know I don't think anyone's mentioned this, what's become quite a terrible framing now of just transition. Um, but, you know, the, the social protections in that are really key elements so you know and I think we we have to recognize that you know sort of I mean I, I can't remember the figures now but you know billions of people in the world have no access to social protections that became very clear obviously through the COVID pandemic as well you know we, we have um, a reduced welfare state and social protections even in the UK now as well so we have to look at all these issues alongside it and see that within quite a broad framework of not just you know what maybe social security payments or protecting you financially through a um, just transition but around pensions around education around housing and you know that that kind of social infrastructure that you know again going back to the pandemic we all saw that is so important that um you know actually keeps us um, safe and mobile and all, all the rest of it. Thanks. I think that's it. It's a really important point that you've kind of all pulled out, which is just how would, how the inequality that's kind of embedded in, um, you know, not, not only the UK, but globally is really causing a lot of problems to how we solve this. And it's really important to see the changes that we need to see through that lens and personally i believe make sure that people are actively involved in those decisions and discussions trade unions being a prime example of how we can can do that but sam knight i'm going to bring you in just to kind of ask you about the role of activists in in making the change happen obviously your group's really dynamic and exciting groups to be part of um what what do you feel is the 
thing that's turning people to support you as a campaign and and where do you think your ideas will take um take us in in kind of looking towards a general election potentially here but also kind of global actions as well if that makes sense yeah that totally makes sense thank you um I think, you know what, like a lot of it is about providing a positive vision. Like we started this session talking about, and it is important to acknowledge how dire things are, talking about those final warnings that we get from the IPCC. It now seems like every six months, right? And feeling that and sitting with those moments, those news headlines can be incredibly dispiriting. And then you look at politics and how the political sphere is responding to this, and you can slide even further into that despondency into that doom and I think one of the most powerful things that we can do as movements for transformation as movements for change is to assert belief that change is possible and that the future can not only be saved from these bleak futures but it can be better than the present as well and being able to bake what everyone else has just spoken about what justice means into those demands and really stress that here, look, in order to tackle climate change, this is the kind of beautiful serendipity of it, I suppose. In order to tackle climate change, we will inevitably have to make conditions better for everybody. So let's just get on and start doing it. Let's invest in millions of green jobs. Let's invest in public services. Let's implement a green jobs guarantee. Let's implement a national nature service. Let's transform our society, our country, so that we are tilting that 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 power balance back towards ordinary people and promoting a world of human and non-human flourishing like flourishing so that i think that positive vision and holding on to that vision is what powers us and is what powers a lot of young people fighting for that change and i guess that's the kind of broad brush big vision picture stuff that might attract somebody to go into activism. I think what we really stress as well is that it's important to have those specific political demands. So you mentioned like in the run up to the election, I think this is quite an exciting time. I know a lot of people in the wider climate movement are quite despondent right now. It feels like we've suffered defeats, but actually I think we've got here an opportunity to shape the next generation. We know how important the next election is going to be in terms of shaping our future, how we respond to these big global challenges that we've already been addressing on this call. And we have a real opportunity here to create a bold and radical offer that will do best for people. So at Green New Deal Rising, we have five demands of the parties that we think are going to form the next general election. Labour is one of those. Our five demands are on wealth taxes, on expending public ownership, on a national nature service, on a green jobs guarantee and measures to make polluters pay, which is all about global justice stuff that we were just talking about. We think we can win that and our tactics are already working. That pressure that we have seen exerted on the Labour Party have, has produced shifts in policy but what we now need is that policy package around it that holds and centers people because we've seen what happens when we just de-industrialize without workers rights without investment in communities without democratic reform and so we need to be making the case as activists and communities to put people at the center of that transition 
Great. And I think there's lots in there and positivity is, is really important that we we can act in the face of, of this terrifying um, crisis, which is not just looming, but as uh, Carola said earlier, is here. Um, so I kind of I wonder whether we we need to kind of think about some of the um, the political uh, landscape, which is kind of forming around these debates in terms of the right wing's response to it, um, especially certain parts of that. And, you know, we've seen it in the UK, uh, we've seen a tightening of legislation around protest. Uh, we've seen some leading politicians refer to um, climate, climate action as kind of woke um, and kind of trying to make it into a culture war issue. Do you, any of you have any kind of thoughts about, um, you know, how we can argue against that because clearly it's so so wrong um to be to be trying to pit neighbor against neighbor when we're all facing climate catastrophe um so so what can we do to help undo some of those arguments which i don't think are mainstream but i think you know could have the potential to gain um gain ground if if we don't tackle them head on does anyone want to respond to that at all or anything you've heard yes sam I don't mind pitching in first. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's something we really have to be careful and guard against and, and see what's happening in some of the narratives. So I'm in London. Um, we're seeing this whole stuff around the, um, you know, sort of air pollution and the um, ULEZ, and I've just forgotten the acronym for it what that stands for um so the the, the zones there but you know the, this kind of language that people don't want you to drive your car they you know um is attacking your personal individual rights and freedoms and all the rest of it i mean i do find it quite ironic you know i i, I see traffic backed up because of you know breakdowns or whatever across you know roads across london and you know so i i, I think that one, one of the the problems is is that you know we have to make sure that when policies are brought in so if we have this situation in in london that policies are brought in that really support people to be able to you know move about on public transport um that it's affordable that it's it's accessible that people have real mobility as well so the, these arguments can't cut through but it's become very very um divisive and and particularly i mean i do remember very much around the 2019 election you know these were real live issues and we have to have good responses to those and know know how to respond to it but i think we have a real danger and you know and as a trade unionist i think we have to be really careful and guard against this and i think it's been quite concerning how we've seen the discussion gone going this week with the announcement of the North Sea oil and gas licenses and um, you know the GMB union just saying how naive what a disaster all this is when you know we know the reality of this what needs to happen um, but clearly we need to have a plan in place you know I, I think United have been right that you know to come out and say that we need the detail on how the transition is going to happen and that's the problem is we always lack the detail and it's part and it partly goes back to this first question you know about the government because the government doesn't have a coherent plan um you know and that's been said time over and time over by it, it's um you know even within it's you know the, the tory party even the chris skidmore review um made uh you know allusion to that as well but i think you know but it also is like we've got to have our program we've got to know what our program is and what's our plan and start fighting 
for that as well and to show which um you know sam said that you know there is this positive vision that doing these things is actually going to make your life better because isn't it going to be greater to have a much more healthier environment with less air pollution or you know to have a proper public integrated public transport system where you can actually move around where you don't need to have a car and you know all these things and, and obviously much wider things as well which goes into our homes retrofitting healthier homes you know cheaper energy bills um but that has to become real and meaningful and people need to see it happening and i think at the moment people don't see it happening and i just want to make one final point and this is why it's really important because I think for those who know the history of just transition and the narrative and where that came from, it actually came out of the US, um, you know, from the Oil and Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, from a visionary, Tony Mizaki. Um, but one of the things he saw and one of the reasons why that he really pushed forward this narrative, he said, if you don't look after workers, they will go to the right wing. Um, and they will move to the right. And this is exactly what we see happening. The right are very happy to divide and use all this kind of, um, you know, well, in, in some sense, eco-fascist language as well. And we, we've really got to make sure we're confident to all speak out against that. And in the trade union movement, we've got to be very careful with our language and what we say and how we respond to some of these arguments. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really interesting point and I have to say it's been we've had a similar thing in Sheffield we've just bought in a um, congestion charge and um, going back to the EU layers which I think is ultra low emission zone I think that's the actual yeah it is sorry um, it just came to me as a step but it's just it's just quite interesting how quickly um things can escalate in terms of like what political narratives people pick up on and things around these changes which I guess is why I think it's so important that we we make sure that any changes is trans as as democratic as possible um you know especially if it's going to be quite transformative to communities so um just kind of on that point like i guess for tess actually it would be interesting to kind of you know obviously part of this just transition that we need to see will involve a huge amount of money having to move around the globe not just be that pretty in their uk bank accounts or in projects here how are we going to build the support that we need politically from you know countries like the uk to to kind of show that this is, is the right thing that we have to do and how in your view <laughs> big question um i was just thinking as sam was speaking around the international side of this this question in the uk context and how important political education is I think mm. that in a UK context, um, the international understanding of the impacts of the climate crisis and just generally global inequality and injustice isn't very well understood. We've seen um, an even further erosion of teaching of those things in schools over the last few years. And the general narrative around the kind of international justice part of um, the climate crisis is takes a hit by the right-wing media very often. I remember when COP27 was happening and there were talks around a loss and damage fund being established for global South countries. The Daily Mail published something along the lines of like, Rishi Sunak wants to spend our precious taxpayer money on reparations to the global South. You know, there's, um, there's a very strong narrative against international justice when it comes to climate crisis. And I think a starting point is really addressing that and um, political education around why taking an international approach to this is really important. And also picking up on what Sam said, I think, you know, with the general election coming up and hopefully a Labour government coming in, um, 
uh, at least Labour leadership, then there's potentially more of a chance of building kind of political momentum in a, in a good direction. Um, and I think that's hopeful for us and something that we're all kind of building around at the moment. You're muted, Olivia. <laughs> I made a really good point. You missed it. Um, now, I was just going to say, I think that's really, really true. And that I think that, you know, it'd be it'd be really difficult for us to kind of um, win this argument on reparations without dealing with some of the history of kind of our colonial past as well, um, which obviously is the root of all of this because extraction economics has relied on us doing terrible, terrible things all across the globe, which, you know, has a long and dark history for us as a nation. Um, but one that politically no one's willing to kind of bite the bullet on and and kind of sort out so I wonder if some of that hesitation is is linked to that really because if we acknowledge the wrongdoing that we're doing in the climate then we have to acknowledge all the economic harms and other harms that that we've done over many many centuries um but Carola I wonder if if you're sat here and thinking what what more we should be pushing for is kind of progressives in the UK and kind of what what our demands should be in terms of international justice and what what would make the difference and what call to arms essentially would would work in terms of climate action uh, well i really um recognize and acknowledge the all the work you do uh, and i think uh, that could lead to a good good result uh, at the international level we would love to see uk uh, pushing for a, a structural systemic reform and transformation of the global economic system under the un un for example and not in other spaces related to the g20 or these uh, more informal spaces like the macron Sami. that we really need to work on official spaces and the un is the only democratic space where we can achieve something like that, like push for a real global economic system reform, and also to transform the international uh, financial architecture, which has proven to be very unfair. Uh, it has been using loans as a new neo-colonial way of uh, having control over our countries, and it's, it's very unfair. So uh, yeah, you, you, you should be uh, trying to, to have your, your government uh, leading this process like a cha big champion and also uh, doing uh, what, 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 we, what we are demanding, reducing their, 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 their emissions, not only in their territory, but abroad, stopping investments in fossil fuels. I am really impressed how Global North is saying that there is no uh, sufficient uh, or enough uh, public resources to, to fight the climate uh, crisis, but we can see clearly that there are there are billions, trillion dollars going to the military expenditures right now with the with the with the, with the war, for example, to uh, fossil fuel subsidies. subsidies. Uh, so we really need to stop investing in sectors that harm people and harm the part the, the planet, and uh, start doing these transformations without harming the south, <laughs> because this transition, this green transition that we are talking about, could also depend. Uh, extractivism in our countries if we, we don't do it right uh, and we have to say uh, we have to also acknowledge that the at the international level there are countries that are still fighting to 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 have good levels or of of the of, of growth or not of growth development and to reduce poverty so 
there are countries that are really struggle struggling with with poverty, with uh, with uh, hunger, and the climate crisis is making this more difficult. So we really need the international uh, community to do a lot uh, as a, a good emergency and a, a, like like a, a, sorry like a real emergency that we're living right now. I, when when the pandemic happened, the pandemic happened. I I was surprised how in such a short period of time we put a, a, a stop a, a break a stop a stop break in the global economic system and yeah and we reduced some emissions there and of course it was regarding the, the sanitary emergency but we can do it it's just about political will and I really believe the people is the the the, the people the movements uh, are the, the the power that that need to to be guiding this politicians under to, to the right uh, way to the right direction. I really believe in us. I don't, I don't believe in them, but I really believe in us. So clearly, just following up on that, there's some big powers behind a lot of this, isn't there? And the billions of pounds that we kind of are saying that we need in order to fix the problem at the moment, a lot of that is kind of held up in gas and oil companies. What more do you think we could be doing to tackle the kind of super profiteering that we're seeing um, within within the production side of this? Is there is there more that we could be doing internationally, or well, I certainly think there's more we could be doing within the UK on it. Um, and you know, a windfall tax is just one example of, of something that might might work. Um, does anyone have any views on on that at all? Sam Knight, you were nodding, so I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> yeah, I can come in there for sure. I mean, we've already talked about global climate finance a bit on this call, so maybe that's like an interesting example to run with. Uh, we know that the UK currently gives around 2.3 billion annually climate finance. Um, if you look at fair share um, predictions, they range from about 40 to 100 billion. Uh, we know there is therefore a massive shortfall in what we are paying, a huge debt that we owe um, to the global south and that we have frustrated over the years. Um, a lot of that can be paid through windfall taxes. If we increase windfall taxes on oil and gas companies, which are making huge and excessive and unreasonable profits, profiteering from war, profiteering from the climate crisis, if we use those instruments that we have already to tax them at a proper and fair proportionate amount, we can pay these kind of debts and at the same time manage that just transition. So like a lot of these things can be solved together when we talk about global justice, when we talk about the green imperialism, quite frankly, which the UK acts on the world stage as, uh, we can address that in a socially just, economically just fashion, both here and internationally. So yes, we absolutely support proper windfall taxes. We also support proper wealth taxes. We need wealth taxes. We need to make sure that those with the broadest shoulders are bearing the brunt of this and that workers are protected in the transition. There, there is definitely a movement building around wealth taxes, isn't there? Um, Carol, you've got your hand up. 
Yes, and I think also uh, debt relief me mechanisms can help a lot. And if, if, for example, countries like UK or, or others could uh, cancel debts in the South, that could give us an enormous uh, amount of money to invest in the 2030 agenda, in the climate uh, agenda, and that could be very helpful. Also, uh, for example, the special drawing rights that have been used during the pandemic, that's a political decision under the IMF that is taken uh, uh, the new allocation of, of SDRs, as they are called, they have they have helped us a lot, even despite the fact that they have been distributed very unfairly because it's on a quota basis. But I think a new allocation is, is very urgent as well, and that's political will. And countries like UK and, of course, the US should be trying to think about uh, how, how good this can do to other countries. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good point about the debt cancellation as well. Like we've seen campaigns like that be successful in the past and have huge impacts. Um, but for for climate action, it, it's an interesting, definitely an interesting discussion to be having. Um, Tess, I guess on that note, you probably want to come in. Yeah, I was just going to share that there is something very specific that the UK government can do on debt cancellation. So. Um, as I've mentioned, private creditors make up a big chunk of the creditors that Global South countries owe their debt to, and they're currently blocking debt relief negotiations. 90% of the debt that Global South countries um, owe to external creditors uh, is governed um, under UK law. Itself a bit of a colonial legacy, but there we go. Uh, so the UK government has a special responsibility and opportunity here to regulate the system and act to ensure that private creditors can no longer um, block debt relief negotiations. So Debt Justice is currently campaigning for that um, and yeah, mobilizing the public and, and working with different people in parliament to try and um, ensure that the government puts that in place and enables global South countries to have the debt cancellation that they need. Um, well, that sounds like a really interesting campaign, and I'm sure that a link to it will be going into the chat at some point today. Um, one thing I want to kind of pivot to, and this this is for everyone really, is, is kind of the nature emergency that we're seeing as well, because obviously that is a, a global problem for us too, but also one that is really affecting us locally. And some of the solutions that have kind of been talked about really come down to land and land ownership, which can be quite contentious. Um, so I wondered if any of you have any thoughts about um, about green jobs in the nature space or whether we should be doing, and you know, Sam, you mentioned the National Nature um, Service, which is a really interesting idea, um, or if, if you think that more can be done to protect habitats globally, um, particularly from what I think could become a bit of an industry in itself of people trying to offset um, their carbon guilt really by buying plots of land which you know actually has an impact on on indigenous people um in, across the globe so uh yeah just throwing that out there to kind of broaden the discussion away from um debt and climate and more to kind of the nature element of this and what what opportunities there are um because we can't fix one without fixing the other and if we do harm to one we'll do harm to the other so it's a, a really important part of the conversation so Sam, I'm going to come to you because you uh, mentioned nature a couple of times and then I'd like to hear more about the, the service you were discussing. Yeah, I mean, we often forget the um, biodiversity crisis, the nature crisis in discussions of the climate crisis, which 
is a shame because they're so intricately linked. Um, we at Green New Deal Rising have like five principles, which we uh, look at the Green New Deal as a package as. Uh, the first is decarbonization. The second is jobs and a just transition. The third is transform the economy. The fifth is global justice, but the fourth is to protect and restore um, vital habitats um, and nature. And that is so important when we talk about the package as a whole, and we can't forget that in the slightly more sexy demand sometimes on the left around public ownership around wealth taxes, is that we've got a lot, a lot of harm has already happened um, in um, our nature, and we need to be able to address that at pace. The opportunity here, of course, is that this can be a job creator, with a proper national nature service, we can be looking at thousands, if not millions of green jobs up and down the country, protecting natural resources, protecting fields, protecting nature in all its glory. And, you know, that's something that like we feel very passionate about and are currently doing work on. We'll have work that, that, that comes out of it. Um, but at its heart, the principle is let's protect let's restore and let's do it in a way that benefits communities as opposed to, like you're saying, what we're seeing increasingly is these schemes being run just for pro profit and therefore repeating the same destructive patterns that we have seen gone on before. Great, it's amazing. I wonder if you've got any views because a lot of this kind of traditionally has fallen on volunteers, I, I fear, and people who are really passionate about nature getting involved um, in their communities to try and restore it. But do you see an opportunity for trade unionists to say, actually, local communities want to have good, qualified, skilled jobs that are unionised in the nature space as well um, as the kind of carbon and energy space? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think that the question of ownership does unfortunately kind of permeate all discussions because I think the whole land ownership issue is um, really important. And I'm just thinking now because obviously since, you know, the, the UK has left the EU, that there's this new agreement now for farmers to be paid um, so they can use some of their land for offsetting, which I think is completely wrong. Um, you know, but we, we do need to be looking at, you know, the whole system of agriculture as well and how we integrate that and clearly into, you know, what's commonly been called green spaces in um, in local areas. But I think it's, it's, it's a jobs rich um area so you know even if we go back to local authorities being able to insource um proper environment workers um you know mm. we, we don't have those anymore um a lot of it's been outsourced so they just don't exist at all and you know those people work in the community work in our parks um can work in those spaces i mean we, we had a situation last year with the very hot weather um, certainly where I am in northeast London, where they were asking people to go out and water the trees that the council had planted because they didn't have workers to go and you know, water the trees. I mean, this is just just crazy on a, on a number of levels. So, um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, we have to see these as skilled jobs as well. But I just want to mention also, because obviously within the civil service and we have departments like DEFRA and the environmental agency, we have the jobs like in the forestry commission, um, mm. you know, where there's actually, you know, publicly owned nurseries, which 
where we mature trees. Um, the government has been trying to close some of those down. Um, but, you know, those are things we should be encouraging. These are all jobs, they're civil service jobs. They should be expanding and, and be as part, seen as part of that, as long with local authority jobs as well. Thanks. You'll be pleased to hear that that's something that I always raise with the uh, the the, the, uh, the need for nurseries and and the um the impact of that those decisions will have on our future is really really important. I kind of think linked to kind of what you were saying about you know not only council workers no longer being able to do the job but some of them really important jobs around uh, you know emergencies which we know will become much more common and I suppose you know. It's, it's obvious from the fact that the fire brigades union is one of the loudest voices in this space about the impacts of the climate emergency. So do you think that the kind of decade or so of austerity that we've had here, the economic upset in other places and, and, and here as well, has really impacted our ability as kind of a workforce to respond to the upcoming climate crisis? And what more can we do to build that workforce back up and recognise that we're going to need more firefighters, we're going to need more um, people who are able to, to, within local councils, respond to kind of some of these emergencies around flooding and things that we'll see? Um, what, what more do you think we should be kind of prioritizing in the conversation around that because sometimes I think that gets forgetting because no one likes to think about the the hard facts of an emergency until it's actually happening in my experience so do you think we could be doing more to kind of build the public awareness of, of those challenges? I'll just come back quickly on on that and obviously you know others to come in but I think it's it's really important it's what we've always argued public services are going to be really fundamental to the the climate crisis not just around the mitigation but adaptations and whether that's in the UK or globally um as well and Carol has already mentioned obviously about the the needs around ad adaptation support for that and um you know the the emergency service are, are the first responders to all the the climate emergencies are on the the front line whether that's in the health service or the fire and rescue services as well and you know an enormous health impacts um that we're gonna see so i think you know there has to be huge investments in in all those areas because unfortunately that is going to be the reality now of of the future some of these things you know we're, we're not going to end sort of where we are unfortunately so we are going to have to continually deal with um, the hotter weathers, the, the you know some of the um, wildfires, etc., and the pollution from that. I mean, the pollution from it is immense. If you talk to comrades in Australia, um, obviously where they've suffered these for years, because that you tend it tends to get focused on people like working outdoors or agricultural workers, but you know from the forest fires, you can be sitting in your office and be impacted by this as well. So um, it's it's huge things to understand, um, and certainly needs masses of investments and really reduces the rights, you know, the ability of our um, emergency service to respond to these things. And I know just having spoken to, you know, comrades in the FBU over the years, um, how difficult it is for them when they have to respond to flooding events or they have to respond to wildfires and they don't have a strategy duty, which obviously would allow them to have more money. So I think that's mm -hmm. definitely to just boost one of their campaigns is obviously, um, you know, that whole element of a statutory duty to respond to flooding in England. I think they have it in Scotland, but um, yeah, definitely. Does anyone want to come in quickly on any of the stuff we've just kind of discussed? Because if not, I'm going to ask you a final question in the final kind of five minutes. Um, and so I'll give you a minute each and maybe a little bit more or less um, if no one else wants to come in. 
Uh, okay, not seeing anyone jumping up and down, so I'll move on to that question, which is really a quite positive one, which is basically for anyone that's been listening to this discussion, which I think has been really valuable, and we've spoken and covered a lot of ground. What can people do to get more involved in climate activism? And what's the most important thing that they can do? And I'll start with Tess. Huge question. Um, I'm just going to say really basic things. I think the first is educate yourself, learn about what's going on and how it's manifesting in the UK, but also around the world. I think, Olivia, you touched on earlier about how the climate crisis is deeply connected to legacies of colonialism um, and empire. And I think, um, as we've discussed, a lot of that is missing in, in the UK consciousness. So bridging those gaps, filling those gaps and learning is really important. Um, but also, I would say, get involved. Find something that you're passionate about, an angle that, that speaks to you and get involved. There's so many different organisations, whether you want to get involved at a UK level or an international level, whether you want to do stuff online or get really active and involved in protesting and, and all sorts of other things. It's, it's a really creative, interesting, wonderful, um, kind space. And I would just encourage encourage everyone to, to get involved. Great. Yeah. Absolute good call to arms there. Um, Carola, I'm going to let you come next because I think you have to dash off. But um, yeah, what one thing should people do and how can people get more involved? Yes, I, I, I completely agree with Tess. Uh, we have to join ongoing campaigns. There are several campaigns and we invite you all to, to, to join these campaigns. We need to participate and organize more debates, webinars, spaces of discussion among civil society, politicians, academia, and other stakeholders. I also think it's important to work together, not in clusters. And that's something I've learned in, in, in the recent months. For example, the economic justice movement is working very closely now with the climate movement. And that's of course going to give us very good uh, results uh, because we have to acknowledge that climate change is a systemic issue and we want uh, we want to get depth justice for example if we don't have climate justice so it has to go together and um, we have to acknowledge the the big power youth movement has uh, it is very interesting also how we are joining forces with the scientific representatives, the scientific sector, and that's very powerful. And also the, the parents, I think there are parents organizing themselves against climate change because uh, as me, for example, I have two, two girls and I'm working uh, every day with them in my mind to, to stop this uh, crisis, to guarantee they will receive a, a good future and a very safe environment. So that I think we can make a difference. That, that's something that we have to believe it's really in our hands. We, we can make the difference. Absolutely. And yeah, I think people thinking of future generations is massively important to kind of that activism, isn't it? And keeping us all going because it can feel a little bit um, hard work and like not much reward, but just remembering that we're doing this for the next generation, I think is so, so important. Um, which Sam should I call on next? I'll go for Sam Mason. So what's the one thing that people should do after watching this and uh, how can they get more involved? Okay, well, I, I'm not sure I can keep it to one, but um, definitely if, if you're not in a trade union, then please do join a trade union. Um, you know, and I know that's not as easy as it, it sounds because of the way our anti-trade union laws are and getting organised and recognised, etc. 
um, isn't isn't necessarily so straightforward. But um, you know, do do check out join a trade union. But also, if you are in a trade union, um, do get involved in the Climate Justice um, Coalition Trade Union Caucus. Um, we really want to expand our network around that. We are we will be holding more conferences this year. We've got um, planning for one in London in October. We need to finalise details of that. Um, but also get involved in your trade union. Make sure there are motions going to your conferences, going to your branch meetings. Have these discussions because, um, it, again, a really important point and others have made. You know, this is not a siloed issue. We need to be joining the dots across. You know, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis. Um, the energy crisis, um, you know, the, the general hostile and sort of racist crisis, um, you know, attacks on migrants and all stuff like this. All these all this joins together, and we need to be able to start talking about in holistic ways. Not means that everybody's got to do everything or artificially just sort of bolt things on, but um, but understand where you know your job or your sector starts to fit into um, this debate in terms of the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis as well, and how we actually need to be driving as as workers and activists driving forward, um, you know, the the change in the way in which we want it. Because as we say, we make tomorrow, and nothing happens without us. So these this has to be led by us. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks, Sam. That's really clear. Get organised and join a union. I love that. Um, so uh, finally, then, Sam, over to you. Or have we? Yeah, we. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> the, the number one. one yeah, it's just too many Sams. Uh, the number one thing, obviously, everyone can do is join the movements for change. And the great thing about the climate movement in 2023 is that it is diverse and full of different groups. So you will be able to find a group, a lobby organisation, a movement that you feel fits you, whether that is Stop Rosebank or Fossil Free London or UKYCC or Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil or Green New Deal Rising, you are welcome in our movements. You will find a place and get in, get stuck in and get active. In Green New Deal Rising, we're gonna be focusing on two things. Uh, one is holding current political class feet to the fire. So we've got a Labour campaign, we've got an SNP campaign. We're going to be doing disruptive actions around uh, those really piling on the pressure to the current political class and raising our demands for transformative Green New Deal policies. But then secondly, and this is really important, we're focusing on actual electoral organising, deep organising, door knocking for a Green New Deal, supporting our champions in Parliament like Olivia, like Caroline, like Clive, and electing a whole new generation of champions too, to make sure that we are creating that political change in Parliament and we are seeding the future governments for future change. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that's a really, really positive uh, point to end. But before I um, I wrap things up, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone that has been listening uh, to a really interesting discussion. I hope you agree. And a massive thank you to each and every one of our speakers. I think we've had a really good and in-depth discussion. Um, and we're now nearly halfway through the festival. So there's still plenty of sessions for people to get involved in. So please do check them out um, using the links posted in the YouTube live chat and purchase a ticket if you can. And again, you can find that link in the chat.